This is the Elevate Student Ministry Podcast. Hi, I'm Pastor Dominic. Welcome to Elevate, the student ministry of Living Word Church, where we exist to exalt Christ, make disciples, and equip the saints. Thank you for sharing some of your time with us today. May it elevate Jesus and encourage you. Let's get started. Well, we've been having fun with this series of big questions, and we've tackled suicide, and we've tackled, golly, grace, and we've tackled so many big things. And I'd like to say thank you to Elijah, who spoke last week whenever I couldn't be here. Thank you, Elijah. You're awesome. If you didn't get a chance to listen to Elijah's message, answering the question, why would God save someone as messed up as me? If you haven't had a chance to hear it, you need to get on iloveelevate.com and go to podcast or search Elevate Student Ministry on pretty much any podcast app, um, because it is worth listening to. You will be blessed by it. Tonight, we're going to open up with the fun one. Uh, Maybe some of you thought this would be fun. Um, Does the Bible speak of dinosaurs? And I'm kind of looking forward to jumping into this. And I want to try hard to stay with Scripture. That's sort of like the, the precedent that we set on the first night, is we're going to stick to what's in Scripture. So not theories or, or best guesses or logic or, or secular history, but like what, at least what does the Bible say, and does he give us any clues? And the answer is, yeah, it does give us some clues. It gives us some insights. And if you're ready for this, turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter One, the word dinosaur wasn't actually invented until 1841 by a man named Sir Richard Owen, and he happened to be a staunch anti-Darwinist, which I found interesting. So he was kind of like anti-evolution. And he founded the name, or he coined the word, in 1841. Now, Scripture was written before 1841, quite a bit before 1841. So it's going to use different language. It's going to use different words. You're not going to find the word dinosaur in scripture, but I don't think that means that it's absent of giving us some clues. Now, before the word dinosaur was coined, does anyone know what word was probably applied to giant lizards? Anyone? No, no, it wasn't chicken. What do you think? What word do you think they would use for dinosaurs, pre-dinosaurs? Yeah, bees, dragons, there you go. So there are encounters with these giant creatures, dinosaur-like creatures have been recorded through history and actually more recent than you might suspect. Uh, There are pictographs in Africa, North America that seem to portray dinosaurs. There are even logs from explorers, scientists, explorers, writing logs of firsthand accounts. Uh, An example of one uh, was written down in May 13th, uh, 1572, A.D., 1572. And this man, Ulysses Androvalandus, is writing his book called Historia Animalium. So he's writing about animals that he's finding around the world. And he gives a firsthand account of witnessing a peasant killing a giant dragon. So that's that's interesting. Uh, But I do want to stick to Scripture to see what Scripture has to say. Uh, One, oh, before I move on, one modern researcher wrote that after researching thousands of books and ancient lessons, I came to see that the most ancient stories were generally 
the least far-fetched and magical sounding. These are often the most sober reports of creatures that closely match known types of dinosaurs. Generally, the later legends, or post-extinction, are spiced up with bizarre mythology and superhuman deeds. And this is by a man named Paul S. Taylor. And he's saying that the older accounts of these giant lizards and dragons are actually easier to believe and more sober, more realistic sounding than the ones in the last four or 500 years, which are embellished with a whole bunch of fun fictional stuff. But what does scripture have to say? So right here in Genesis 1, it's interesting. You can take it or leave it as you like. This is God and he's creating He's, you know, light on day one, and then he creates the expanse in the sky on day of whatever it is, day one or two. So let's jump down to verse 20. Right here it says, And God said, Let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures, and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind, and God saw that it was good. And God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And there's evening and morning, the fifth day. Now, some of your Bibles may have a little note that talks about these great sea creatures in verse 21. Uh, some... Uh, translations will actually use the original word of literally the word there is dragons. So let the sea creatures, the, these great sea creatures. So God created the dragons and every living creatures that move, which swarm in the waters. So it's sort of something like, er, kind of like question marks, could we do moment? Er, you know, what's, what's up with that? So you can get on blue letter Bible if you want to, and you can go to Genesis 121 tap that verse and look at the original Hebrew words and you'll see that it says dragons. So it's interesting. So let's go look at something with a little bit more description. Turn your Bibles to Job chapter 41. So cut your Bible in half and you should land in Psalms or Isaiah and go left and you should fall into Job. Job chapter 41. So we're going to look at a sea monster, a land monster, and a flying monster in Scripture. Isn't this fun? Here we go, Job chapter 41. And boy, it's hard to pick out where we're going to start at. Uh, let's start at verse 1. Remember, if you remember from last two weeks ago, God is sort of roasting Job. And he's like, Job, where were you whenever I created the world? Did I ask you for wisdom on how to lay things down? Where, where were you when um, you know, animals are giving birth on the mountainsides? I'm the one that's keeping this going. How are you contributing in any way? And so he's going he's gonna to now bring to Job an enormous creature that's going to dwarf him and any other creature that he's seen. And God's going to say, who's in charge of this creature? Are you going to be able to handle it? Are you going to put a... a, a bit and bridle in its mouth like a horse? No, of course not. So let's look at this. This is chapter 41, verse one. Can you draw out, and he gives it the name, Leviathan. And Leviathan with a fish hook. Can you catch this? 
on a line? Like what pound test do you need, Job? Or press down his tongue with a cord. Can you put a rope in his nose or pierce his jaw with a hook? So you can't treat it like an ox. You can't steer it. You can't do anything with it. Will he make many pleas to you? Will he speak to you soft words? I'll uh, skim down uh, to, you can keep reading if you want to. Verse seven, can you fill his skin with harpoons or his head with fishing spears? So you can't just spear this thing like, like you would like a giant other fish, like a whale or something. Lay your hands on him. Remember the battle and you will not do it again. If you mess with this thing, you're not gonna get a second chance. Behold, the hope of man is false. He is laid low even at the sight of him. No one is so fierce that he dares to stir him up. Who then is he who can stand before me? So Job, if you can't even mess with one of my creations, how are you gonna stand before me? So let's keep looking through. Um, Man, uh, verse 12, I will not keep silence concerning his limbs or his mighty strength or his godly or his goodly frame. Who can strip his outer garment? Who would come near him with a bridle? Who can open the doors of his face? Who can grab his mouth and open his mouth? Around his teeth is terror. His back is made of rows of shields. What are his scales like? Rows of shields. Shut up closely as with a seal. One is so near to another that no air can come between them. Verse 17, they are joined one to another. They clasp each other and cannot be separated. His sneezings flash forth light and his eyes are like the eyelids of the dawn. Out of his mouth go, what? Go flaming torches, sparks of fire leap forth. What are we talking about? Out of his nostrils come forth smoke as from a boiling pot and burning rushes. His breath kindles coals and flames comes forth from his mouth. In his neck abides strength and terror dances before him. What is going on here? The folds of his flesh stick together. They formerly cast him immovable. His heart is as hard as a stone, as hard as a millstone. When he raises himself up, the mighty are afraid. At the crashing, they are beside themselves. Though the sword reaches him, it does not avail, nor pierce the dart or the javelin. He counts iron as straw, the bronze as rotten wood. He's so strong, he's just like, iron doesn't make a difference to this guy. The arrow can't make him flee. Verse 33, on earth there is not his like, a creature without fear. There is nothing on earth like this Leviathan thing. He sees everything that is high. He is king over all the sons of pride. Like this dude is intense. So you can also read about this dragon-esque creature in Isaiah 27.1, Isaiah 51.9, talks about this dragon, uh, the sea monster kind of dragon. Job 26.12 also talks about this creature of the sea. And you'll even find that it's named in Isaiah and Job the name Rahab. I don't know why they gave it that name, it's there. Go study it for more if you want. Also here in Job, turn back to chapter 40. So that was some sort of sea creature, monster, something. I'll let you take it for what it says. And this is another thing that's called behemoth. And you're going to laugh when you, when you hear what Bible scholars are trying to make this out to be, but we'll get there. Job 40, let's start in verse 15. God is doing this again, like Job, who do you think you are when my creations are way bigger than you are? Verse 15, behold, behemoth, which I made as I made you. He eats grass like an ox. So this is a land creature. Behold, his strength is in his loins, that is his back legs, and his power in the muscles of his belly. 
He makes his tail stiff like a cedar. Has anyone seen a cedar tree? Does it reflect like a rose bush? No, it's enormous. It's big. The sinews of his thighs are knit together. His bones are tubes of bronze and his limbs are bars of iron. Man, when this dude dies and you get a skeleton, they're enormous bones. They're strong bones. He is the first of the works of God. Now, this doesn't mean that God created him like in order being the first. This is talking about like he's the chief. He's the king. He's the greatest. He's number one. He is the first of the works of God. He's the biggest, the strongest, the mightiest, most dangerous of the works of God. Let him who made him bring near his sword. For the mountains yield food for him where all the wild beasts play. So this thing lives in the mountains or something. It's crazy. Under the lotus plants he lies in the shelter of the reeds and the marsh for his shade, the lotus trees cover him, the willows of the brook surround him. Behold, if the river is turbulent, he's not frightened. He is confident that the Jordan rushes against his mouth. Can, you, can one take him by his eyes or pierce his nose with a snare? So there's this big land creature his bones are enormous. They're super strong. He has enormous legs, this monstrous tail like a cedar. He says he's tall. He's looking over stuff. So people are trying to figure out what to do with this. Now, Job may be one of the first books that were written in our 66 books. It may go back to the time of Abraham. It could be that old, which is kind of crazy because Job talks about the earth being a sphere and it revolving around the sun. And it was going to be hundreds of years later that, that science like figures this stuff out. So it may be one of the earlier books that were written around Abraham's time. So we're talking back in 2000-ish BC. So people are trying to figure out what do we do with, these, with this creature, this behemoth. And so they have, they have two thoughts of what it might be. They think it might be a hippo. They think it might be an elephant. Now, an African elephant is enormous. I'm 22,000 pounds. An African elephant dwarfs all of us at the same time. It is a monster of a creature. But whenever you look at this, does it have back, strong back legs? Yeah. What about its tail? Have you seen an elephant tail? Do you, do you stand in awe at the mighty power of his tail? Why are you laughing? Because it's ridiculous, of course. Have you seen a hippo tail? It's like a flap of skin, boop, and that's it. That's all it brings to the table in the realm of tails. It is embarrassed around other creatures with tails. And the African elephant is the biggest land mammal that we know of. So just thinking aloud here a little bit, there's another kind of creature that actually has really big tails compared to the rest of the size of their bodies. They're reptiles. Have you ever seen a saltwater crocodile? They're enormous. And their tail makes up like, I don't know, a third or more of their body. The, uh, the saltwater crocodile's tail is seven feet long when they're fully grown. Seven feet long. That's taller than the people you've met. So if I was gonna think through this, of what has a really big tail, I'd probably classify it more reptile than mammals, since we don't have any mammals with tails like that. The, the longest tails on mammals, by the way, are lemurs or kangaroos like, or spider monkeys. They, they just don't have the might and majesty of a behemoth. You know what I mean? So it's interesting. So that's a water monster, 
a land monster. And then we get this one little blip of a thought in Isaiah. Uh, if you're already pretty close to Isaiah, just go right. You'll pass Psalms and Proverbs. Isaiah chapter 30. Isaiah was written uh, on the top of my head-ish, 500 years before Jesus, give or take. And Isaiah chapter 30 just throws out this reference. He's making this comparison. Let's see, Isaiah 30, verse 6, if my notes are right here. So what are we talking about? The Lord be gracious. Um, he's talking about, I believe he's talking about the coming enemy that's coming against them in Israel, probably Babylon. All right, so let's start in verse 29, just for fun. You shall have a song as in the night when a holy feast is kept and gladness of heart. So things are going well, yay. As when one sets out to the sound of the flute to go to the mountain of the Lord, to the rock of Israel, and the Lord will cause his majestic voice to be heard and the descending blow of his arm to be seen in furious anger in the flame of the devouring flame and clabbers. Uh-oh, where is it? Is it verse six? Am I in the wrong place? Did y'all find it already? Yeah, here we go. Yeah, you're right. Thank you. Thank you very much. Chapter 30, verse 6. Rewind. Uh, Oracle of the Beasts of Negev. I want to give you guys some context here. Sorry. I had all of like three hours to prepare for tonight because I've been juggling children minus my wife this week. All right, here we go. Verse 6. An oracle on the beasts of the Negev. Uh, Through a land of trouble and anguish, from where comes the lioness and the lion, the adder, it's kind of snake, and the flying fiery serpent. They carry their riches on the backs of donkeys and their treasures on the humps of camels to a people that cannot profit them. Egypt's help is worthless and empty. Therefore, I have called her Rahab who sits still. So he's talking about you guys are going to be hopeless against the enemy that's coming after you. And you think that you can side with Egypt and make an alliance with them. And if you side with Egypt, everything's going to be better for you. And he's saying, Egypt is hopeless for you. They're going to come and they're going to carry your spoils away. And what does he compare them to? He compares them, strangely, to a snake and the flying, fiery serpent. Beats me. Have at it. And then it brings in, look at what name, the name of Rahab, which Isaiah and Job use for this freaky sea monster. So it's interesting. So taking scripture for the plain meaning, it would seem that mankind and dinosaurs may have actually overlapped. We may have an eyewitness in Job. We may have a reference in Isaiah. Genesis chapter one, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, may have mentioned them. It's worth thinking about. Not worth wrecking yourself over. Uh, but if it's true, then they were created along with man and women in creation. They may have been on the ark. That's hard to think of since Job was after Noah's flood. That's kind of wild. Uh, they were at least seen or known of by early Bible writers. And they would have died out like any commonly known extinct creature. Climate changes, lack of food, diseases, man's hunting them, destroying their environments, etc. If you want to, you can also look into carbon dating 14. Because that's my big question. It's like, okay, but carbon dating. Carbon dating, though. And so I went looking in, into that, and again, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it. You guys can go look at this up for yourself. But apparently, carbon-14 dating makes enormous assumptions. And all you have to do is tweak those assumptions, and suddenly the, 
the dates become much, much smaller than millions and millions and millions of years. It's wild. If you want to look into this for yourself, a great place to start is called Answers in Genesis. YouTube.com, whatever you want to do, go check it out, and you can look into it a lot more. So that's the first question. What does the Bible have to say about dinosaurs? Well, we have some really interesting descriptions of some freaky-sounding creatures. Blowing fire, I don't even know. I know there's a beetle that, like, blows some sort of loud noise out of its rear end. You know, maybe there's something going on like that. He beeps me. But here we go. Our more serious question for the night. Why would God punish the whole world for one man's mistake? And this question is a reference to Adam. Adam messes up and the whole world falls into sin because of Adam. Why? I wasn't there you weren't there. I didn't have the choice about eating the fruit. You didn't have the choice about eating the fruit. How is this fair? And maybe this question bothers you a little bit. It bothers me a little bit. I'm glad I got to look into it a little more. And we covered it a little bit when we were doing our Hebrew series. And let's turn our Bibles to Romans chapter 5. We're going to start in verse 12. Why would God condemn the human race for one person's sin. Romans chapter five, verse 12. And what's happening here is Paul is showing the beauty of Jesus. He's comparing Jesus to Adam. And he's explaining that through Jesus, we're saved, we're righteous. And as you dig into Hebrews, it unpacks it that Jesus is seen as our representative that when God looks at us, he sees Christ. And it's amazing. We can dig into that another time. Go back into the Hebrew series on Melchizedek and, and, and then part two of that, and you'll enjoy it. Romans chapter five, verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, it's Adam, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. So the wages of sin is? Thank you. The wages of sin is? So if we are sinners, then our wages is? All right. So everyone who sins will? All right. Spiritual death, physical death are all a part of this death that comes with sin. It's part and parcel to sin. Adam's choice determined the destiny of the human race that would come after him. He's the first, he's the head. He's the representative of all of his children, his children's children, and on and on and on. And through him, because of his decision, his sin, sin comes into the world. But I wanna make a quick little note. If you see in verse 12, it says that sin comes in through one man and death through sin, but it also, the verse ends with this. Death spread to all men because all sinned. There's a both and here. Wait a minute. How am I responsible? Because you and I sin. So sin, our, pro, our proclivity, our desire, our, in, our desires to sin, our sin nature comes from Adam. And so we're condemned. And we are absolutely responsible for our own choices. And so this death is coming for a both and, both because of Adam and because we sin. 
So this idea, the fancy word for it is spiritual federalism. And that's when one representative of a group of people makes decisions that will affect all of them. And when that representative makes a decision, each of those people are counted as having personally made that same decision. And all of them receive either the benefits or the detriments of that decision. And maybe this example helps you, maybe it doesn't, but one way to think about it is Congress and the president. They represent us. Whether you and I like it or not, if they declare war, it takes Congress and the president to do it, and we, we are all at war. If they declare war, the United States is at war, we are at war too. And our taxes are gonna go to that. They may have a draft that pulls people out of colleges and all kinds of stuff to go and fight in this war that they brought us into. And if the United States wins the war, we all get the benefits of that. And if we lose the war, we all receive the detriments of that. Think of Germany after World War I. And so Adam was our representative. And he made decisions based on everything that God gave him dominion over. And everything that God gave him dominion over is going to receive the benefits or detriments of the decisions he makes. And Adam chose to elevate his own desires over God's commands. Adam chose himself over God. And when he did, and he sinned, we are counted as having done the exact same thing, as having made ourselves our own idol over God, as having elevated our will over God's will. So you may be thinking, wait a minute. How is that fair? I didn't vote for him. And how can you tell me that if I would have been in the garden, I wouldn't have done something different? Those are great questions. Maybe you're thinking to yourself, we're Cajuns. We would have roasted that snake and put crystal hot sauce on it. We would not have obeyed it. But before you, you know, kind of get a little self-righteous towards Adam, consider who did choose Adam to represent you and me. It was God who is all-wise all-knowing and perfect. And before he created time itself for you and I to exist in, he already knew every word we'd say, every action we'd take, and every thought we think. And so he knew exactly who to pick to be our perfect representative, to represent exactly who you are and exactly who I am. The same God who knows you and me better than we know ourselves chose Adam. And here's the kicker. With every evil word and thought and action we take, we defy our creator and we elevate ourselves over his authority. My brothers, my sisters, my friends, we would have done exactly what Adam did or worse. How do we know? Because every time you and I sin, we confirm it, that he was our perfect representative. I want to examine even the question. Doesn't the question itself challenge God's 
justice? God, who are you to set unfair boundaries? Who are you, God, to make the decision of what's going to happen because of Adam's choices? We're all saying, like, how is this fair, God? And it exposes our arrogance to judge God's justice and our narcissistic view of ourselves. I'm not so bad. Why do I get condemned for what someone else did? <laughs> like, really? When we hold up a mirror to ourselves, we realize that we, we aren't that far off from being exactly Adam and Eve. But we think we're pretty good, but good compared to who? Someone we look down on? What if we compared ourselves to someone that we look up to? What, what if we compared ourselves to goodness himself, to justice and holiness and love himself? Where would we fall on that scale? Painfully short. He is perfect love and perfect holiness. And out of his love and holiness, he refuses to abide with anyone less than his own goodness. And on that scale, we find ourselves desperately unequal to God. Unequal is actually where the word, think about unequal, inequal, inequality. This is where the word iniquity, iniquity comes from. It means to be unequal to something. And sin is because we are unequal to God. We, the, the scales are tipped terribly in our favor because he is who we're compared to. In the courtroom of ultimate truth and justice, it is only fair that those who are sinful are thrown away from his presence. And in that courtroom, it would be grotesquely unfair for us to receive God's favor and inherit heaven. It's not unfair that many will go to hell. It is unfair that any go to heaven. Did y'all hear what I said? It's not unfair that people go to hell. It is unfair that anyone would go to heaven. Jesus breaks. No, he doesn't. Jesus perfectly upholds the system because holding up to God's standard of goodness and holiness out of Jesus' grace. He made a way where there seemed to be no way. That where we could never represent ourselves. Let's keep reading in Romans 5. Dot, dot, dot. Romans 5. You should already be there. Verse 18. Therefore, as one trespass, that's Adam's sin, led to condemnation for all men and women, so one act of righteousness... Ooh, what are we talking about here? Leads to justification in life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came to increase the trespass. Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life. How? Come on, you're following with me. How do we get eternal life? Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. You see, Jesus perfectly upholds the system. He is perfect holiness, perfect goodness, perfect righteousness. We can never represent ourselves. So God elected another representative. We were represented by Adam. 
And we have nothing but condemnation and death. And so God, out of his great love and his great justice, became our representative, who became flesh for us, who emptied himself, as it says in Philippians 2. He became a representative, as it talks about, throughout Hebrews, and he stands before God. So I've got a question for you. Are you represented by Adam or are you represented by Jesus? Because if you're represented by Jesus, then when God looks at you, he sees holiness and goodness and love and perfection because you're no longer represented by Adam or yourself. You're represented by the Son of God. Thank you, Lord, for your second representative. Jesus lived a perfect life in perfect obedience. He elevated his Father's will over his own will, doing the opposite of what Adam did. And those who are reborn into his family have him as their representative and are counted as having done what he did and we receive the status and rewards that he earned. Did you follow that? Please tell me you followed that. Because Jesus did everything right and he represents us, we receive the benefits that Jesus receives and the rewards that, Je that Jesus receives. That is inheriting the kingdom. That's Ephesians chapter one, that, that God blesses us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places through him, through Jesus. 1 Corinthians 15, 21 through 22 says, for as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Hallelujah. God is good. And he sent our second representative for me and you. And because our salvation is not based on anything that we can do, as Elijah so beautifully laid out last week, I've got beautiful news for everyone in here that has sinned. Psalm 103. This is worth looking at. It's the last place we're going to turn tonight. Psalm 103. This whole chapter is amazing. It's going to be hard to, to stop, but I want to get someplace beautiful. For everyone in here, who used to be represented by Adam, but have given your life to Jesus, made him your Lord and your Savior. Everyone in here that Jesus has saved, I've got really good news for you because God treats his people differently. There were two five-year-old boys. They lived in different towns in the same state. Both towns were rained on. Both towns had mud around one little boy was told by the very grumpy next-door neighbor to stay out of his yard. But his yard was the only one with mud. And when he was caught, this grumpy old curmudgeon chased him out of the yard with a stick. The second little boy in the nearby town was told by his mom not to play in the mud in the front yard. 
And when he was caught, she brought him inside, carried him over the carpet, put him in the tub, and she washed the mud out of his hair that he couldn't see for himself. Is your view of God a grumpy old man with a stick when it comes to your sin? Or is your view of God as your father who takes you in and washes you? When you sin, and this is a mark of a believer, when you sin, do you run from God or do you run to God? Because a believer knows where the anecdote for the poison of sin and death is, and it is in the hands of his loving father or her loving father. Psalm 103, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Wow, what a way to come out of the gate. He is like on fire in praise. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Why? Why is he so fired up? Why is he so jazzed up? Verse three, who forgives all your, what's the word? Iniquity. I'm out of balance. I can never live up to your perfection. And yet God forgives me. Who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. What? He doesn't just, he doesn't just save you. He doesn't just clean you. He crowns you. He blesses you. He pours out gifts on you. Who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles? Verse six, the Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. What is justice? Justice is hell. But he works justice and righteousness for his people. Jesus lived up to righteousness for you and I. Verse seven, he made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. Verse eight, the Lord is merciful and gracious. Mercy means he doesn't give us what we deserve. Gracious means that he gives us what we don't deserve. He's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, which means he doesn't always reprimand us, nor will he keep his anger forever. Verse 10, right now, everyone look at your Bible. Verse 10, he does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. Please tell me you're following me. He does not give you what you deserve. He does not give you what's fair. He doesn't give me what I deserve or what's fair. And that is the greatest gift, the greatest reason for praise and rejoicing to be fired up that we have is that when God looks at us, he should look at a sinner that is worthy of death and hell and rejection, but he doesn't deal with us according to our sin. What? The God of justice, of perfection, of perfect Equity does not deal with us according to exactly what we deserve. Is God breaking the rules? Is he breaking character? No. God fulfills perfection and righteousness and justice through his son so that you and I don't ever live up to it, can never live up to it. Jesus is the answer to this. God doesn't break character. He doesn't break his own justice. He doesn't break the rules. If you hear a preacher say that God broke the rules out of love, that preacher is lying to you because he's creating a God that is fallible, 
a God who changes, a God who has a mind this way on today and a mind this way tomorrow. No, he doesn't break rules. He is the rule keeper. He is the rule. He is holiness. He will never be less than his own holiness. He cannot break himself. But what he can do is out of his great love and mercy and grace, he can give himself for the punishment for our sin. And it was a brutal, bloody, shameful, and grotesque day when the Father poured out the hell that you and I deserve onto his own son. The agony and torment that every believer would have had onto his son so that we wouldn't have to pay that price. And then, not only taking our punishment, but wiping away the fact that we had a record at all, but then, what, what does he do? He crowns us with steadfast love and mercy. He gives benefits and blessings Satisfies us with good? What is that? What kind of God does that? That would love us so much. That's grace. We don't earn it. He loves us because he chooses us and he chooses us because he loves us. I don't have it figured out. Believers who love Jesus lapse into sin and they hate it while sinners leap into sin and they love it. Where do you run when you sin? Do you run to your father or do you run away? It's the badge of a Christian to run to the cross. Those who want their sin, they run from him. And those who want relationship with him, they run to him. I want to close Imagine with me a back-in-the-day kind of king. And he has called the dignitaries, representatives, other kings in the areas, all to this banquet. And it is a highfalutin pomp event. And there's this enormous hall. Maybe it's as big as this room. And there's banners and music and everything is to the hilt, the finest of everything. People are eating off of gold dishes and stuff because in every seat is someone of great power. There are other kings and princes and representatives and lords that are all sitting around this table. Everyone there is important. Everyone there wields strength and power. But at the head of this table is the king of all of them. The king who called the banquet, the most powerful, the one that all of them, when the king stands up, they stand up. When the king sits down, they sit down. If the king laughs at something, they suddenly think it's funny because he's the king, the king of all of the kings. Now, would you imagine with me for a second? Down at the end of the hall, 
the door cracks open. Not even big enough for a full human. And closes. And you hear these little... And you see this little fluffy hair bobbing behind the shoulders. Behind each of these very regal, very important people who are very excited about it themselves. And the fluffy hair, the little head bobbing, goes behind shoulder after shoulder after shoulder after shoulder. And everyone's all tense. They're all wondering what the king's going to do, what the king's going to say. And the little fluffy-haired kid has the spine. He's so brazen, backbone, can't believe it, walks past all these people, walks up to the king, and climbs upon his lap. Who has the right? Who has the right? Except the son or the daughter of the king. Jesus died for more than just sponging your sin. He died so you have the right to go into the very holiest, most reverent place and sit on the lap of your dad. No wonder you can pray and know that your prayers are heard. No wonder you can have peace, that everything's going to be okay, because your dad is the king. And he doesn't count your sin against you anymore. If you don't know him like that, I challenge you, get alone tonight. Go before God. Ask him to save you. Give him your life. March past all the people. They're all proud of themselves. All the people that want their sin. And go to the Father with your sin. Go to the Father with your prayers. And all of your love. Heavenly Father, I thank you. Thank you, Lord, so much for what you did for us. There is no one greater. There is no one that expresses love more purely than love yourself. Thank you for grace. Thank you for mercy. Thank you, Lord, that when our first representative failed, you became our representative, lived up to your own standards, and you brought us into your family. We love you, Lord. Challenge the hearts of every man and woman here. Thanks for listening, and a special thanks to all of you who have subscribed, shared episodes, and left reviews. If you would like to learn more about Elevate, you can visit us at iloveelevate.com and follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Thank you for everything you do that brings faith, hope, and love to the world around you. Now go, follow Jesus.